the Mac Observer's Mac Geek App, episode 613 for Sunday, July 10th, 2016. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek App. The show where you send in all kinds of things, we shared those things and many others, and uh, the goal is together to learn, we raised the bar last week, four new things each and every time we get together. This episode is sponsored in part by Gazelle at gazelle.com. We'll talk more about them a little bit later here in Durham, New Hampshire, ostensibly. I'm Dave Hamilton. And here, indubitably, still... (laughs) In Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. So we are, as we mentioned in last week's show, we're actually recording this immediately. Well, not immediately after the uh, 612. We took a short little break and actually played the folks on the live stream at macgeekgab.com slash stream. The uh, Fling, uh, Fling, which is my uh, band, uh, one of the bands I planned, we just released an EP, Bovine Abduction, and we played that uh, for everyone on the stream in the break, you can hear it streamed to you from Apple music and Spotify and all that. And we'll put a, uh, a link in the show notes, but, uh, so we're recording this well in advance. In fact, this is the most certainly the furthest in advance we've ever recorded an episode. And I am going to bring a mic with me, uh, on my travels. I think John, just, you know, in case I don't know something, we could get a wild hair or something, but, uh, but, uh, with that being recorded, you know, in advance, I figured let's, let's, slow the pace down a little bit and, and do a deep dive on a couple of things and see how that goes. Uh, and, and one of the things that many of you've been asking us about is, uh, is Synology. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, uh, in a minute, uh, or in a couple of minutes, actually, that's, that's not the first topic we're going to talk about. Uh, we've got some, some talk about power line and, and replacements thereof, um, for networking. We're going to talk a little bit about that, new Mac buying advice, you know, just, we're going to take a little bit, uh, we may only do like four topics on the show, but, uh, you know, I figured, uh, this would be a good opportunity to do that. And, and of course, as, as we know, things happen as soon as we seed a topic, well, it tends to kind of come back in, in spades in terms of questions and that sort of thing. And that's great. So we're going to seed a couple new topics today. If, uh, if everybody's all right with that, are you okay with that? Mr. Braun? Yeah. Let's, um, so let's jump to Jan, Yan, I'm not sure actually how he pronounces his name, Y-A-N-N, uh, to get things started. He says, um, talking about, uh, well, I'm going to read his whole note and we'll, we'll see where we go here. Uh, I think we'll all agree that time machine sucks. And I personally, uh, have experienced silent backup corruption where some critical system files were missing from the backup when I needed it. My iMac wasn't bootable. I could figure things out in single user mode and copy missing files from another running system, but that's definitely not something a mere mortal would want to go through. The best thing about it, there's no way to check consistency of a time machine backup. As incredible as it sounds, Apple has no way to let users check their backups. It's true. Apple has no way to do that. You could, you could do it, use a different tool, but, uh, but it would actually be quite a bit of work to, to make that happen. They let you verify the integrity of the sparse bundle, but that's not the same as 
making sure that the backup is actually an accurate representation. Just yeah. to- no, no, you're right. The only way to, to check if a backup is an accurate representation is to do the backup and then do a comparison, making sure the files in the backup match the files that you just thought you copied to the backup. And, and, and that is a very uh, slow and deliberate process sort of by definition uh, and there's, I mean, I guess you could do a checksum on the whole thing, but still you've got to go read what you just backed up. You cannot trust that just because you wrote it, it succeeded. You have to go read it. I, th- I mean, you know, that's, that's called you verification, know, you, right? Yeah. You actually bring up an interesting point because I have, we had a question suggesting something like this in the past. Yeah. Um, there are tools that will do as Dave mentioned, so there's something called a checksum, which is basically this, uh, basically something complex. Well, it's, it's a complex calculation that is done on a blob of data, and you get this magic number, which represents that blob of data. And so, right. Derry, what you could do is and, you and, could and, take- And hopefully uniquely represents that blob of data. Yeah, and these are called hashes, one-way hashes, and th- and typically that's that's the point of these functions is that um you know a simple version of a way to calculate this is to take the value of each byte and just add it up into a number, but that's bad because the potential for you to get a collision with data that doesn't that isn't the same is very high. So they do like I think you know what the the one that most people use is something called a CRC or cyclic redundancy check and. MD message digest or another thing. But anyways, there's a way to calculate a value. But as you pointed out, I mean, you got to look at every byte of data. You and have to take read a it. Really? Yeah. I mean, if, if you're backing up gigs of data, then this could take a really long time to calculate that. Um, and I've seen some programs that can do that on a file by file basis, or I guess on a whole blob. But sure. um, yeah. it's time consuming. The other thing is that uh, programs like Carbon Copy Cloner do have a feature that will do this painstakingly painstaking comparison but it slows your backup way down but it's doing a lot of work so yeah just yeah. thought i'd mention that but um yeah and i don't know if i say time machine sucks i'd say it's lacking <laughs> yeah it, well yeah that's right yeah i i i use it it's it, as i've said it's just not the thing i rely on solely um, yeah yeah and and we we and and I would encourage all of our listeners do not have time machine as your only backup because you will regret it. Right. I can almost guarantee it. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it would be awful. Yeah. All right. Moving so on. yeah, moving on. He says uh and and that's what Jan says. Moving on to APFS, which is the uh, name for the new Apple file system that Apple has written and is coming out uh at some point next year. He says, we all have great expectations for it, but I'm holding my many horses for many reasons that I'll explain. Number one, yes, APFS has snapshots, but snapshots aren't backup. It's a representation of the file system at a given point in time that lives on the file system. So if you toast your drive, you toast your snapshots. I didn't hear anything yet about Apple being able to get blocks of snapshot differentials. Uh, Number two, even if they were able to copy differential backups using snapshots, it brings a great challenge regarding backup retention, backups browsing. The genius uh, about the way backups work today 
is that they just have to remove the directory of a backup and magically free up the space by specifically used specifically by that backup thanks to directory hard links. That's how Time Machine works. Uh, being able to browse that directory to use that backup with hard links is easy because it's done at the file system level, not at the block level. Deduplication might be a way to solve the space issue. After all, who needs snap snapshots if all similar blocks on a file system are pointed to a unique instance on disk? But then again, all I learned so far is Apple is doing this in APFS only when you duplicate a file or folder. They do not maintain a database of blocks to be able to match identical data in line when you bring in new files. The one thing that gives me hope is that APFS is currently incompatible with Time Machine, meaning they are probably working on a special version of Time Machine for APFS. Um, so, and he says, nothing's ever easy. And that's totally true. I mean, moving to a new file system is a big deal. Uh, and Apple says that you can move to this file system without erasing your drive. It will somehow migrate HFS plus to APFS. Um, and I don't know if that's in the Mac OS Sierra beta uh, or not. I haven't messed with APFS yet. I haven't really messed with much of the Sierra beta, uh, as I mentioned in the last show. So, um, so what, what do you think here, John? I mean, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. I, I have great expectations for APFS. Um, I like the fact that Apple has built a file system that is for the modern age, right? And, and does some of these things. It's tailored for SSD. I think in, in true Apple fashion, it's really smart that they have gone deep and made a file system that will work for watch iPhone, Mac, right? You know, that that's really smart because having it be ubiquitous across their own products will make it, uh, make all of those products more robust, uh, which is good. You know, the, 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 the nuances of it though, you know, I think I, I feel like, so Apple, you're right that they're not doing any, um, any uh what was i going to say verification of data on anything but the file system right and the reason for that is is you know power consumption and battery life um but i don't know i mean you got to make choices somewhere what do you think you know dave i i'm a simple man and i have simple needs and i think we should just go back to mfs when, did, when were we using MFS? Yeah. I'm glad you asked that question. So for those that don't know, this was the first file system that Apple came out with, and it was the Macintosh file system. Right. And okay. it was simple. Flat. Um, what came after that was then called hierarchical file system. So if I recall correctly, MFS didn't even embrace the concept of directories. All the files were in a single level... <laughs> No, I'm just joking here. Um, there, from what I've seen, that their new file system uh, has been inspired by others that do smart things. I think the the one, and I think somebody's even come up with a version of this uh, or an open source version called ZFS, and it embraces a lot of the features. Um, so what Apple's doing, like many things, is nothing new, but they're, they're going to add more. You know, as, as you covered, they're going to be adding more integrity. Now, one could argue that, well, no, I think it's a bad argument. I mean, one could argue that, you know, the, the uh, 
preventing data loss and data corruption really isn't the job of the file system. But actually, now that I think about it, but the reason I say that, because we're going to talk about yeah. shortly, is one could argue that uh, it's the job of the storage device to take care of that or oh. to assure that in part, depending on who you talk to. Yeah. Right. Yep. You know, raid and all of that. You know, raid is a, is one way to kind of solve that problem. Though you could still have corruption, but raid uh, offers various levels of duplication and checksums and recovery. Where you know, for the most part, if you're if you're on a raid or raid like storage device, you can be pretty sure that your data is not going to disappear. Right. Um, right. Right. Yep. But having having features within the file system um, to kind of make sure that. Because I guess the problem is that computer operations, so you know, software in the operating system, the, the, the problem is that bad things are always going to happen. And this is just the nature of any sort of computer uh, storage medium, whether it be RAM and stuff like that. And I've read a few things on this, and it actually does get kind of scary. So a lot of times, you know, software is going to be writing data either to uh, a drive or to memory and reading it back. Yeah. Sometimes it gets it wrong. Because it's just the, it's just the nature of either magnetic or memory memory devices. They'll get it wrong. Yeah. So you may say write a one and it'll write a zero instead, or you say write you know five and it'll write six. Oops. You know oops. that's just, yeah. Because sometimes you know there are ways to to um, you know, and it's funny though because uh, you know one thing I observe is that Mac does not use for the most part, as far as I know, most Macs do not use what's called ECC or error correction codes in memory in ram that's right yeah in ram um this is one way to prevent bad things from happening is to use memory chips that kind of have a level of redundancy i think the price you pay is that it's probably not as uh, potentially not as fast as memory without this this uh of course yeah yeah so there's an interesting thing michael sai who uh was first well known for making spamsive and now makes eagle filer Uh, i guess he might still make spamsive uh he has been uh, doing a great job actually collecting a bunch of links and commentary about uh, APFS that we will uh, put in the show notes for sure. But, uh, but about this data integrity, he actually quotes the D trace blog, which is Adam Leventhal, I believe. Yeah. Adam Leventhal's blog and Adam, I don't know his entire history. It's hard to say. It's hard for me to say, but I think he either was one of the creators of ZFS or worked on it pretty deeply uh, when it was being created at, uh, at sun, I I believe is where ZFS came from. But uh, so he's got, you know, he's, he's definitely there. And, and Adam was at WWDC and in the session when they talked about APFS and then he cornered, some of the engineers and talk to them about it and, and got some more details because they're, you know, happy to talk about this stuff. And what he says, and this is the section that Michael Sy quoted, he says, APFS removes the most common way of a user achieving local data redundancy, copying files, a copied file in APFS actually creates a lightweight clone with no duplicated data. Corruption of the underlying device would mean that both copies because it's really one set of data were damaged. Whereas with full copies, localized data corruption would just affect one of them. And then he says, APFS checksums its own metadata, right? We talked about checksums, CRCs, but not user data. 
The justification for checksumming metadata is strong. There's relatively not much of it, so the checksums don't consume much, much storage, and losing metadata can cast a potentially huge shadow of data loss. If, for example, metadata for a top-level directory is corrupted, then, all, then potentially all the data on the disk could be rendered inaccessible. ZFS duplicates metadata and triple duplicates top-level metadata for exactly this reason. So that part makes sense. Like your, your file system, the directories, and all of that are, uh, are protected against data loss. That, that's good. Well, well, you know, I like the concept that, uh, as I, that, that a copy is not occurring. Because as I mentioned, that, that typically involves reading it into RAM yeah. and then writing it out again. And the potential is that what gets put in RAM and taken out of RAM could get corrupted. And, and I imagine that's what happens these days with a lot of file systems. The, is it, the problem, it, it writes it and, and it doesn't make sure that what was written is what was read. <laughs> but here's the thing. The problem with that is if you haven't read that file in a long time, it may have already begun to suffer from something called bit rot, which is the concept of mm. that your physical storage medium has failed you in some way that you are not yet aware of. And this happens, especially with long-term storage, but this definitely happens. So if you've got bit rot either before or after you make that quote unquote copy, which isn't really a copy, you have no protection, right? And you don't, you don't, you wouldn't even know that there was bit rot until you tried to access the, the actual file. And this is where Adam goes further. He says, explicitly not checksumming user data is a little more interesting. Apple engineers I spoke with claimed that BitRot was not a problem for users of Apple devices. But if your software can't detect errors, then you have no idea how your devices really perform in the field. ZFS has found data corruption on multi-million dollar storage arrays. I wouldn't be surprised if it didn't find errors or better to say, I would, I would be surprised is what he says rather. I would be surprised if it didn't find errors coming from TLC, the cheapest NAND chips in some of Apple's devices. And Michael Sy backs this up. He says Eagle Filer has detected a lot of bit rot for him over the years, including on SSDs that come from Apple's factories. So Apple's saying our stuff is so good that we don't suffer bit rot. I mean, that's just like, that's crazy talk. There's no such thing as, you know, perfect storage. You know, so that that part, but Apple's engineers also said, and this wasn't quoted here in this part of it, but I think it's elsewhere in this Michael Seib piece is that, they also it, battery life was also a concern, right? Because the more data uh, protection that you're doing, the more CPU you're using, the more of the drive that you're using. And so the more battery life you are consuming. And, uh, you know, obviously with all of Apple's devices, you know, including Macs, because so many of what Mac, the Macs they sell are portable, that this is, you know, a problem. They say, well, if you use third party drives, you might have an issue, but our drives are so good that, You'll never have bit rot or we've never seen bit rot. It's like, dude, you got to There's a little bit too much Kool-Aid there. Uh, but basically what it means is you have to do backups still. But there's, you know, this magic answer. And maybe maybe that's a good thing. You know, maybe the fact that we're even talking about this is going to help dispel any myths about APFS mitigating the need for real backups. And, uh, and it won't. No file system will. I don't think not even your NAS um, because you can have bit rot on a NAS too. 
Just because there's multiple drives doesn't mean, oh, doesn't your Synology warn you every month? Hey, dude, you haven't done data scrubbing yet this no. month. It should. No. Well. It, it gives me a report every month on the health of my drives. No, but if you log into DSM, it, it, ver, with version six, it has now started warning users every month you need to do really? data scrubbing. Well, you, okay. Not, I'm not receiving that warning. Whether or not you're getting that warning, you need to do data scrubbing. I don't do it every month. Uh, I do it every three months. And you go uh, sort of jumping to the uh, Synology geek, geek Gab portion of this. If you uh, go into Disk Station Manager and go into um, Storage Manager and go into Volume and choose your volume if you have more than one and click Manage you have the very first option is start data scrubbing. And what that does is it goes through and reads every bit of data you have stored on the drive and make sure that it is readable. Uh, because, you know, especially with a NAS, long-term storage, you're probably not looking at every bit of data on a regular basis on there. So what are you saying? Storage manager. Storage manager. Yeah. Follow along with you. Okay. Yeah, of course. Overview, volume. Okay. Uh, click man, on volume. Click on volume and then click on manage. Uh, my manage button is grayed out. Have you selected the volume? Yes. What does your volume status say? Normal. Uh, Synology hybrid RAID. Maybe it's because I'm running only two drives. Maybe. Yeah, that might be that. It might explain it. Yeah. yeah. No, man, manage is grayed out. Isn't that Again, weird? because. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because my configuration, so Dave's is a little, uh, so, so the one that um, they set me up with is their uh, 730, DS713 Plus, I believe, which has two drive bays. I can get right. expansion. Sure. And I'll have to chat with them about that. But right now I have two 2.73 terabyte drives and they're set up in what's known as Synology hybrid RAID, yeah. which basically means that one drive is a copy of the other. So it's a very simple RAID implementation. Well, wait, wait, we should rewind though, because... Um, and, and now we're in the Synology geek gab portion of this, which is totally fine. No, this is great. I just want to drop a timestamp because otherwise I'm going to lose where we are. Um, the, uh, the, the Synology hybrid raid is actually the same thing I'm running here. Uh, with oh. two drives, it, it, the only thing it can do. So Synology hybrid raid probably for yours says with one disc fault tolerance protection. Correct. And you can, and so does mine. I could, because I have multiple, more than uh, three drives or whatever, I could have set it up as uh, two disc fault protection if I wanted, but I did not. Um, so on mine or on yours, if you added a third drive, it would use only one disc as its parity drive, essentially for fault protection. Uh, so you, you are by sort of just by, um, the, a, the, as a byproduct of the fact that you only have two drives, one of them is used for fault protection. It's effectively a mirror of the first, right? I mean, because there's no other way to do that. But if you had a third drive in there, you would get all of the storage of the third drive added to your storage, right? You have two, three terabyte drives, essentially. They're, they show up as 273. Uh, so two, three terabyte drives, and you get essentially three terabytes worth of storage. If you added another cool. three terabyte drive, you would now have six terabytes of storage because just one of the drives is being used for the, the, um, the fault tolerance. And that's Synology hybrid raid. The, it, the reason they call it hybrid raid 
is you can have drives of different sizes in your uh, RAID setup, and it will, for the most part, maximize the storage space, which whereas with traditional RAID, you can only use drives of the same size, or at least if you added a five terabyte drive or a series of them and your RAID array was set at threes, it would treat those fives as though they were all threes, uh, whereas Synology hybrid RAID starts to get smart about it as you add more. So, right. So I just, I just didn't want to, I just didn't want people to be confused by that. And it's, it's smart that you set yours up as Synology hybrid RAID because if you had set it up as mirrored, it would have made no difference to you at the beginning. But like you said, if you're going to add an expansion bay with some drives, that's where SHR lets you really go nuts. Right. And I think the question we got here from our chat room, which you can always reach at macdecab.com slash stream. That's correct. I'm pretty sure that's where it's at. Where you can hear at. us and you can interact with us, which is oh so much fun. More fun than Barrel of Monkeys. <laughs> Did you just call all our folks in the chat room a Barrel of Monkeys? Well, I I love monkeys. Monkeys See, are awesome, man. Haven't you always wanted a monkey? <laughs> I want one of those little 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 cool ones. I I forgot um, capuchin. Uh, I think that's it. Yeah, the ones that are in a lot of the movies. I mean, they're just super cool monkeys. Yeah. But um, but no. One of the questions we got from Furby's uh, as to my setup is, I believe he's correct in saying that my setup is essentially a RAID zero setup. It it, it the. Yes, the effective result of it is that it's RAID 0, but it is not RAID 0. That's right. Yeah, it's theirs, but... Um, right. Right, because as you pointed out, um, their RAID can handle si- different different size drives. RAID 0, of course, being mirroring, I think, which is yeah. one drive is a copy of another, so you have some uh, redundancy. Yeah. Um, and then as you mentioned, uh, I think when you start to get to raid level five, that's where it introduces what you call parity, which is basically a very simple form of error correction. I think. Well, it's, it's more like than a check, error. Yeah. It's, error check, correction. It, it's like, it, it, well, it, it, I believe it's a collection of checksums. It right? is, but it's, it's reversible checksums. So if like I have, I think six drives in my Synology now, I should look cause I got it open here, but if I lose any one of them, it will rebuild the lost data immediately, effectively uh, from the from what's left on the other drives. So every drive has the ability to to be removed without losing your data ostensibly. But but again, without doing data scrubbing on a regular basis, I don't know that unless I pull a drive out and test, you know, throw caution to the wind. But that's the point. So, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's um, it's interesting. It's interesting. So if you have any other questions or thoughts about APFS, send those in. We'll, Actually, we'll you transition know to the Synology thing <clears throat> in a minute. Go I'm ahead. sorry, but I think what was said was incorrect. So RAID 0 is striping. Oh, no, you're, you're RAID okay. 1, which is mirroring. Right. Okay, and you can look this up. We'll link to it, or you can find it easily enough here. But RAID 0 is, is the very is the simplest form and it offers no data protection or anything, but so it's called striping and it basically spreads. So it makes a number of drives look like a single drive. So that's raid zero. And why would you want to do that? Well, you, you could use it for performance or also totally just, performance. Yeah. Just because you, you can be writing to multiple drive and you can make w- multiple drives appear as a single drive. But yeah, part of the benefit is that in, if you have the right controller, it can be writing uh, data to 
multiple drives at the same time. So you and, get a throughput. And reading data from multiple drives at the same time. That's that's the where right. a lot of the speed benefits come in with with um with RAID arrays. Even even with, with Synology hybrid RAID. I mean I no one disk in there would be fast enough to fill up my gigabit Ethernet connection, mm-hmm. but with all of them running, I can read or write data at you know and, and completely soak up my gigabit connection, which is yep. awesome. Yeah, and then RAID one is essentially what I'm have. So no, mine is mine is essentially RAID one, which is the same data is on two different drives. That's right, and one is a copy of the other. So, um, so if one drive totally fails, I can still access the data. Right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's then right. I think then you got two and three and four, which from what I see is something that not a lot of people use. And then yeah, then the next RAID level is the, is RAID five that yep. a lot of people use, and that's. That's where it, it, it contains information that helps you recreate data that gets damaged. That's right. Right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And there's more, and you can read up on it. But I think those are the most popular for most uh, most purposes: is RAID zero, RAID one, and RAID five. Yep. Yeah. All right. I want to take a uh, a quick uh, detour here, John, and I want to talk about Gazelle, our first sponsor, and then I want to get back to, um, and then and then we'll talk about Synology in in depth here so um gazelle at gazelle.com long time listener to this show will know that gazelle is the place where you can turn your iphones your old iphones into cash if you're like me and you upgrade your iphone every year you get a new ipad pretty regularly whatever that is you start to wind up with a pile of these things because you don't want to get rid of the old one right away uh, you know, you want to keep it around just in case there's a problem with the new one or whatever. So you, you know, you, you make a backup, you start using the new one and then suddenly like three months have gone by and you're like, Oh crap, I got to use that phone for something. So maybe you hand it down to a family member, but then that person has an extra phone, right? At some point in the chain there, there's an extra phone left over. And sometimes that phone sits and collects dust for a while. Well, instead of the phone collecting dust, you can collect cash. And that's what Gazelle does you visit gazelle.com you tell them what you have and they will tell you what the price is that they will pay you for it if you like that they will immediately send you a box at their expense you pack the thing into the box you ship it back to them at their expense with their shipping label and tape so you don't have to do anything it's all right in the box they get the device they confirm that it works or or doesn't if you told them it wasn't working they you know they'll give you a price on that too and then they send you your money that's how it works. It's an awesome service. I've used it countless times and it works great. Sometimes they get stuff that's in such good shape that they're willing to sell that directly back to different customer to, to customers. Now they clean it up first and get all your data off of it. Although you should get your data off of it before you send it to them. And they walk you through that process too. But if you're looking for a used iOS device, or a, another piece of, uh, you know, handheld electronics like that, visit Gazelle. And instead of clicking sell, click buy on their homepage there. And you can go through and get this stuff that's guaranteed by Gazelle and cleaned up by them. And it's really nice stuff. So you got to check this out. Go to gazelle.com. And when you're checking out, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Tell them Matt Geekab. That's who sent you. That helps them. That helps us. That helps you. Thanks so much to Gazelle for sponsoring this episode. All right, John. So let's, we, 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 
we dipped our toe in the water of Synology. Many folks have been asking and where I figured we would start or, uh, or resume as the case may be is with the, um, with just what we do with it. Uh, so there's a lot of things that I run on my Synology. Uh, some of those include, um, you know, like a destination for my, my backups, you know, some files that I'm just going to store there, that sort of thing. Right. Well, let, 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 let's, let's back up a moment. Okay. Could we? No, yeah. I just want to, uh, for those that don't know sure. what Synology is, though, most would, but I just want to make sure I got my facts straight here. Okay. So what I have is a Synology unit that connects to a network, otherwise known as a NAS, Network Attached Storage. Now, I believe Synology makes those, but I also believe they make direct connect versions. I'm almost certain they do, which I've, use a I've different never, interface. I've never heard of anything from them that's a direct connect. No. I don't think so. No? Like Thunderbolt or... Uh, no, I guess the other guys do. Okay, I, yeah. just, I just... Just want to make sure of that okay. Yeah, it's so they're it's, all it's so network. they're all network attached. So uh, everything that Synology makes currently is all uh, network attached. Okay. That's well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they they make their router, which is a, a sort of <clears throat> sort of a separate device. I mean, it, it it functions as a different purpose, but runs a very similar operating system. But yeah, Synology's disk stations, which is what we're really talking about here, are their network attached storage devices. And the cool part. About having, you know, as I said, you have a network attached storage device. Great. That means that you can store some of your files. You can point your time machine back up at it. Nothing wrong with that. But what it really means is that on your network, you have this device with gobs and gobs of storage and a computer inside of it. By definition, if it's going to be on the network and acting as its own citizen on the network, if you will, it has to have a CPU. So then you can stop and think about, well, hey, if there's a device with all that storage and a CPU, couldn't it do things for me? Because it needs to be on all the time, right? That's how it's going to work. But it's a relatively low power CPU uh, in that it's not going to chew up tons of uh, of juice because there's no screen attached to it, you know, nothing like that. So better than leaving a computer on all the time. It can leave your NAS on all the time and it can do a lot of fun things for you. And the Synology folks are really focused on the Apple market. Uh, Not only do they make their disk station and then the apps that go on the disk station, but they also make apps for iOS so that you have this sort of, you know, perfect match of what you're traveling with and what you've got back at home or at the office. So, now that you've got a device that has some stuff on it, well, what kind of stuff would you store on there? You'd probably store your movies on there, right? You'd probably store your music files, big things. You'd probably store your photos. Well, great. Now you've got a device with your photos, your music, and your, your movies connected to your network with a CPU. Hey, now you can do some fun things. And sure enough, that's what Synology uh, has built into their devices. They have three of their own packages called Audio Station, Video Station, and Photo Station that do exactly what you might think they do. So Video Station is awesome, right? Because it it's, looks at all of the movies you have now put on the device. You tell it what movies to look at. So if there's things that you have on there that you don't want Video Station looking at, that's fine. Um, it looks at them. It 
builds metadata for your movie. So even if you don't have like all the movie posters or any of that stuff, it figures it out because it links with all these different online databases to sort that out. And then you can play movies right from your web browser. You can run the DS video app on your iPhone or iPad to not only play movies, but copy them to your device for when you travel, like on an airplane, offline viewing. And they've also got an Apple TV app now for DS video that lets you do the same thing. So now you've got one media library that streams wherever you want it. Same is true for audio station. Photo station actually is, goes even beyond that, backing up your iPhone photos automatically when you're home to your disk station. And then you can view your photo libraries from anywhere. It's very cool stuff. I don't know which ones of those you're using, John, but, uh, but with those three, I'm, you know, I'm running my own private cloud. I'm going to tell you what I'm using, Dave. Yeah. <clears throat> but I want to add a little something first. Of course. Here. Of course. Uh, to talk about the hardware. All right. So you are correct. The thing is that there, there are other NAS vendors that also make Direct Connect. But yeah. So what I've I seen Synology at this point, uh, as far as their, their disk devices, uh, are just network. Now, one of the cool things that I like about the network devices, Dave, is, is that a lot of them, so you could have just one network connection, typically gigabit ethernet for, for most modern computers. That's what you would be using. Here's the one thing that once I bought a, uh, uh more sophisticated switch, I, I, I'm able to do with the disk station. And this just, you know, made my inner geek so happy. There is something that you can do with a network and the Synology supports this, where you can basically bond two connections together and make them look as one. Why would you want to do that? Well, number one, because you can, but number two... <laughs> of course. So I have two... So the Synology that I have has an option where I can take the two gigabit Ethernet ports on this, and because my switch supports it, I can tell the Synology, hey, by the way, can you mash these two together and make them appear to be a single two gigabit pipe? And it's like, sure. So that's one thing on the hardware side, that, that they're higher... Well, this is a relatively low-end unit, and even even this supports it. So, you know, their big boy units do as well, um, right. where you can bond multiple. You know, I think they have units with four and probably eight I've Ethernet got, connections. I've got four network ports on mine. Yeah. Okay, so you, in theory, could could get a four gigabit pipe. Of course, you know, I, I don't know if you're <laughs> all the drives you have in there would support that through, but but that's one neat thing on the hardware side. I don't know that I can. I don't know that I can bond more than two of them together. It, it depends on your switch. Your switch has to support oh, certain okay. protocols right. and there's different protocols. So you may be able to just do two or you may be able to do four. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's yeah. also called link aggregation. It's link aggregation. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so out of the things that you mentioned, I would say that the one that I use the most, uh, I dabbled with PhotoStation. Okay. Uh, and some yeah, people have asked. Yeah, we talked about it recently. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't really actively use it. I think Audio Station I did use for a while, but but right now my primary device for streaming music is the uh, the Heos, uh, Denon Heos. I sure. use that. No, no, I'm sorry, I'm lying. I do use Audio Station, but what Audio Station does for me is it. If um, I'm almost certain that Audio Station makes my Synology look like a DLNA source. That's right. Yeah which the Denon Heos speaker system can see DLNA audio sources 
So yes, so I'm constantly using Audio Station because it provides a DLNA. DLNA is, uh, I forget. But DLNA is a standard for publishing media. And right. if you have a device that, that can understand it. So yeah, so I use Audio Station all the time Yeah, uh, to stream my music. Video Station, primarily what I do is a lot of times I will rip a movie using Handbrake and then store it in, in the video folder. Then yeah, as you said, it's awesome. So I think it uses IMDb or some. Uh, uh, it, uses, it uses several different um, different online databases to to figure out what movies you've got and then and then pull the data. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah it's usually, sometimes it usually gets it right. Yeah. It sometimes gets it wrong. Well, if you name your files right, so those of you that are using Synology, there there is a naming convention, and Plex it, Plex is another app that that basically combines the functionality of all these all three of these things we're talking about: audio, video, and and photos into one thing and you can run Plex on your disk station too. In fact, you can run it on exactly the same libraries that the, uh, the video station and audio station see, and it works great. I, I run them in parallel and sometimes I use Plex and sometimes I use video station, but, um, but there is a naming convention that if you use it makes identifying your movies much simpler. And basically what it is, is name of the movie dot, year that the movie was released dot file type. So, you know, uh, I don't know, Zootopia dot 2016 dot MP4, right? I think that was 2016. I don't know. I don't have that movie, but, um, but that would be one way of, of, you know, that that's how, if you name your files that it really gives the right hints to the, um, to the various parsers to, to get it right. Yeah. Yeah. I found that too. The naming, um, now here, here's the thing we haven't talked about. We've both talked about how we use these things and we talked oh, about how we use well, them at, mention- at home. Right. We, we come, we'll come back around. That's fine. Um, we, we talked about how we use them at home and I talked about how I sync it for offline viewing, but because it's a network device, if you have an always on network connection, which most of us do with cable modems and DSL and that sort of thing, you can access all of these things remotely. So I use audio station actually before I got Apple music with the iCloud music library, I was using audio station constantly from my car because my phone could just magic. It it made no difference whether I was at home behind my, my router or out and about on the other side of my router audio station would stream from my disc station regardless. I mean, what one would be doing it over, you know, my, my data connection on my cell phone, but it's not that much data and it's really no different than, than, you know, streaming anything on any other music service. So uh, with Apple music, obviously I'm using that a little bit less, but if you want to create your own, you know, quote unquote, iCloud music library, but personal cloud music library, then it's just automatic with the stuff. It's really, and it works really well. I've done it with video station where, you know, the night before a plane ride home, I'm like, oh, I want a different movie for the plane. And I just launch, you know, DS video and I, I go, it may, you know, it's just like I'm home. I scroll through, okay, that one hit download. And, you know, and then I plug, I, I pl- plug my iPad in on charge and I go to sleep. And by the time I wake up in the morning, as long as the hotel's Wi-Fi is fast enough, uh, boom, I've got a movie. Good to go. It's pretty awesome. Now, and the reason you can do that, or maybe you can do it without this, but another feature that they offer that's really neat is uh, they support what's known as DDNS. What the heck mm. is that, you ask? And I'll tell you what it is. Dynamic Domain Name Service. Um, every device on the internet uh, has an IP address. Um, though a lot of times, there's this thing called DHCP, which... 
introduces the potential for you to get a different public-facing IP address for your device. A lot of times it won't change, and it may not change for years. I've, I've had this happen, but especially if you like cycle power on your router or something like that, it may grab a different IP address. Well, that's kind of inconvenient. Say you're out and about and you want to access your network remotely. Well, if you don't know the IP address, you're, you're kind of in trouble. <laughs> but they have something called DDNS, which is a service that will constantly check your IP address, but it'll also bond it to uh, a name. So, for example, Synology offers this service, and you get an address that is something.synology.me, I think it is. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it's something like that. Yeah, it really, you, you, you do. You get an address like that, but you also just get an, a, a Synology name for your device, and that's all I use. Uh, okay, it, so but, those but kind of could, overlap. You, they do overlap. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, because sometimes for some Synology apps, I'll enter that name as the IP address of... Though it sounds like I don't need to. I, I could do it other ways. You can do but, it other um, ways. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's pretty, it, 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 it's very robust. You know, these things have been around, Synology's been making these things for a long time and they really have solved a lot of the difficult issues that, that just come along with this. And, and, you know, DDNS is one of those, those things. It's, it's super handy. Uh, and it's, again, it's just all baked right in. And speaking of baked right in, you manage this thing from a web browser and the web interface is awesome. I mean, it feels like a, a computer desktop. You get menus and you can have multiple windows open simultaneously. In fact, you can drive yourself a little bit crazy with that if you want. But it's really, it manages itself really, really well. Um, I, you know, so, there, and there, again, there's just all kinds of stuff you can do. I, um, I, I'm trying to think of the other things that I use as I look through here. I mentioned Plex. Uh, I'll if, toss one out. If, go ahead. Yeah. VPN server. We've talked about VPNs. VPNs is uh, if you're if you're out and about and you want to secure your network connection or you want to access your network from afar, you probably want to be running a VPN or virtual private network. Well, they have a VPN server, and yeah. uh, Synology's actually lets you set up one of the three. I think the only three. Maybe there are others, but it lets you set up either a PPTP, an Open VPN, or an L2TP slash IPsec VPN. I personally run OpenVPN, though I know you you uh, you have a different preference, Dave. And then on my iOS device, I actually run. So the program I run is called I think it's called OpenVPN. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, okay, so let's talk about this because um, you, well, finish finish your your thought, and then I want to talk about VPNs sort of as a separate thing. But but okay, go ahead. Yeah, finish. Your so thought the thing about is, VPN, yeah. All right. So on iOS, I use a client that's called OpenVPN. And when I run that, it lets me connect to, uh, it, it creates a, a secure connection to my Synology uh, for my iOS device. The program that I use on my Mac, I think it's called TunnelBlick. And that's a OpenVPN client that you can run on your Mac. So um, if I'm out and about, depending on the device that I'm using, I can get into my network and create a secure connection, which is a good thing. So, so this is interesting and, and this is going to be very important to all of us that are going to be running iOS 10 and Mac OS Sierra come this fall. Uh, Apple is a company that's obsessed about security. Uh, for a long time, I have not used the VPN server on my Synology 
because my router supports VPNing and has for a long time. It was one of the things that attracted me to the the DD Wirt uh, router, you know, third party firmware years ago. It was the only way I could get a router, you know, at, at like home user prices that would let me do a VPN. But at the moment, DD Wirt supports only one type of well, actually it supports two types of VPNs. It supports PPTP and OpenVPN. OpenVPN works. But the problem is configuring it sucks. Not only is oh, it... Oh, don't be such a baby. No, no, no. Here's the, here's the big thing. <laughs> it is not native to iOS or OS X, right? Okay. So you yeah. need, need third-party software uh, to make it work. And even with third-party software, you need to exchange a certificate between mm-hmm. you, your, uh, you know, your, your server, in this case, your disk station, and each, every single device you want to connect. So if you're out and about, let's say you're traveling, you wipe your iPhone because you had a problem. Now you've, you want to connect to your VPN. You can't unless you have that certificate stored somewhere that you can then re-import it to your iPhone. So it's all doable. It's just, it, there's, there's some pain points. Like anything, when we talk about, you know, living on the, the continuum of convenience versus security, OpenVPN leans a little more on the security side. I was always okay with PPTP. It yeah. uses an encryption method that is awful uh, and very hackable, but requires no certificates to be exchanged. So it was like, awesome. I'll just use that. It's native to OS 10 and iOS. Great. I'll use that. It's built into my router. I don't even need to worry about two pieces of hardware working. As long as my router is working, I can VPN. Great. And then I installed the Mac OS Sierra beta while I was out at WWDC and immediately realized that my VPN profile to my home machine was gone. And I thought, well, this is weird. Let me go add it. No, no. It says, it says, sure, you can add any one of these types of VPNs and PPTP is not on the list. And recently in both uh, OS 10 and iOS version, you know, El Capitan and, and iOS nine, it started warning me that PPTP is not all that secure. Maybe I should use something else and I would just skip those warnings. Well, it turns out those warnings were a bit of a heads up that, hey, we're deprecating this. PPTP mm. is no longer, it no longer exists in the OSs that we will get in the fall. So I had to start using something else. My, like I said, my router supports OpenVPN, but I didn't want to jump through those hoops. And especially on my router, configuring it there is like an entirely manual process just to get the server up and running. And then, you know, I got to go further and get the clients. So I thought, well, my VPN server on my Synology is right here. That'll let me connect L2TP and IPsec. OS 10 or Mac OS Sierra supports it. iOS 10 will support it. And of course, iOS 9 does. So it lets me use it today. And I configured it and I configured all the port forwarding that was necessary. And I looked and yep. Okay. All good. Doesn't work. Won't let me connect. Won't let me connect. Won't let me connect. Tried and tried. Oh, Hey, look at, let me connect. Oh, now it won't let me connect anymore. It was very unreliable or unpredictable. And so I did some digging cause you know, it's what I do, John. It's what we do. Turns out back to my Mac also uses something very similar with IPsec and back to my Mac will commandeer any port forwarding that I had already done on my router. So instead of routing these IPsec packets to my disk station, it was routing them to any number of my Macs behind, you know, in my, on my network. 
Once I turned off back to my Mac on, on every single device that exists in my network, then L2TP and IPsec worked great. So if you are using a PPTP VPN, that's a lot of letters. Uh, you mm -hmm. need to, you need to think about that before you start putting iOS 10 and, and all of that stuff on there because yep. y you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. 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 So the only challenge. So like you said, I like open VPN because it essentially provides you with a token, the token being a certificate. And if you don't have it, Correct. you're not getting into the network. Whereas yeah, your I, implementation, if I beat you over the head as you're trying to log in and I know your password, then yay, I'm into your network. I win. Well, but, with um, L2TP, you need two pieces of information. Oh, you do? You okay. do. You need a, a system-wide token, which is similar to the certificate, but it can be much shorter. So I, I know that token and I can give that to my family, right? And it's the same for everyone. And then each user has their own username and password. So- it's essentially like there's three pieces of information you need, but it's, so is the token, uh, it's a, it's a key. It's a word. It's a, it's a password. password. Okay. It's another, it's a, it's a, it's a separate password. Yeah. All right. You, so there's like a system password and then correct. each individual has a password. Okay. Bingo. Got it. Got it. Got yep. it. Yep. I think I could set it up with tokens, but, uh, but I haven't. So, um, actually, right. no, I'm trying to look here. No, there's, it's, it's, they call it a pre shared key is what that is. Oh, all right. Yep. All right. Um, now the only thing I had to do, which got kind of tricky, so the uh, so I have the TP Link uh, wireless uh, the router Archer C nine. I love the thing to death. It's great for eight hundred two out of eleven AC. My only fish shake is um, I, I think it's sometimes because I do believe that a lot of their staff is overseas. Um, some of their wording is kind of weird. And so I actually had to dig a bit to find out because the thing is, is that I had to tell this device how to allow someone coming outside my network to get to the Synology. And they put it in a weird place, Dave. So I actually had to go to NAT forwarding, advanced virtual servers, and actually define a map from the outside on UDP port 1194 to the IP address, yeah. uh, the internal IP address of my device. Now your, your disk station, and this is a one little anomaly with, with the way the disk station works. It, if, when you set up your VPN service for the first time, or when your disk station reboots, it will attempt to auto program your router with either UPnP or NAT PMP, which are just protocols that, that essentially let devices configure their own port forwarding. The problem is it doesn't ever check to confirm that those are still in existence. So if you reboot your router and it and and the process of rebooting your router happens to lose those settings, your disk station will just assume, well, I set it once, but it should be fine. You know, it doesn't doesn't ever like it doesn't do a daily reprogramming of of that, which frankly I think it should. Um but that that was probably your problem. It, you know, you probably had rebooted your router and and it just didn't work. You know what I mean? So, yeah. What I'm trying to figure now is they also have a UPnP section, and it seems that somebody I'm trying to figure this out has set up port three zero four one six. That's probably Skype. Okay. Yeah. Is that is pointing to your what? What address does it point to? Does it point to your Mac? I mean, we're well, on a Skype on, call see. right now. Uh, it's on 1.87. Let me look because I don't. Yep. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, uh, oh, wasn't that nice? Okay. So Skype talked to this and said, hey, create exactly. these two uh, tunnels. Exactly. 
Oh, yeah. very nice. That way we can have a direct connection, even though you've got a, a router in between. And so do I, you know, but it just done. Done. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it it's cool. Um, I use something on my Synology called crash plan. We've talked about that before. Um, it's a Java based backup client and actually it works as a client and server. So you need to install Java on your, on your Synology. This is, this is one of these third party packages that you kind of have to jump through a few hoops. It's not terrible, but being able to have crash plan on it means that I can back up my entire disk station. If I want to crash plan servers, which is handy. It also means that my disk station can be a backup desk destination for me or anybody I want to give access to. So for example, I could have you backing up to my, my disk station. I have my mom backing up to it and, uh, and it's, you know, I don't have to have to think about it. It's just good to go cross platform, happy, happy. So it's cool. It's, it's a little, it's a little bit of work to set up. Uh, but for what you get, uh, you know, it's, it was worth it and it's free. Uh, you can pay for a crash plan subscription, but if you just want to use it as your own crash plan destination and, and, and not host with them, then it's a hundred percent free, which is cool. And, and that's, you know, again, these are the kind of things that, uh, that the disk station, you know, or any kind of NAS lets you do. Um, I run, you know, we use uh, an IRC channel and I, I I'm going to say, I, I think it might make sense. Alex is going to cheer here to move to a Slack channel for our, um, for our, our chat that goes along with the live stream because we'll have more history and, and things like that. So we are going, when I get back from Europe, we're going to work that out and, and at least test it. But, uh, but for now, because we don't have a Slack channel and we use this IRC thing, which is an old, I mean, it's been around forever. You probably know what it is. Um, there's no history with IRC. If I log out and 10 people start having a conversation, I'll, I won't see any of that. And if, when I log back in, I'll, I'll see what happens after I'm logged in. Well, I use this thing called ZNC, which runs on my disk station and keeps me connected to our IRC server all the time. And then when I want to connect, I actually connect to my, I connect my IRC client to my disk station and it shows me everything that has happened since I last connected to the disk station, which is really cool. And I, again, I can do it either locally here or from wherever I want, which is pretty cool. It's cool. It's fun. I like it. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a blast having this device on the network that not only provides a real service, you know, my family has been going nuts all week, downloading movies to their iPads and all of that for, uh, you know, for our, our plane rides and, and that sort of thing. But it really provides a, a handy service. I use it as a time machine destination. Actually, mine has a, uh, has a couple of USB ports on it and, and a couple of them are uh, USB three, so I have a direct connect Drobo attached to one of the USB ports on my disk station. And not only is that a backup destination for the disk station itself, it's exposed to my network as a backup destination for time machine. It's super handy. Uh, you know, it's just, and, and, you know, here we are, I've had a disk station for what, five years, every year I probably add two things to what I do here. And I'm always like, man, I should have done this a long time ago. This is so cool. But, you know, I can dig in a little bit and, and uh, you know, have some fun with it and then kind of leave it alone. I have Transmission running on there, which is a, a BitTorrent client that uh, if I want to download any torrents or anything, 
again, I don't have to do it on my computer. I just throw the, the torrent file in a, in a folder there and it auto like starts the download and I'm good to go. I don't have to think about it. When it finishes, it tells me. It's got note. Actually, NoteStation is pretty cool. It's, it's your own Evernote type server. Um, and if Evernote gets really wonky on us, John, we might wind up moving to NoteStation. So, oh, because then we could have our disk station sync with each other. I mean, you could, you wouldn't even need a disk station to connect to my note station, for example. But if you've got two of them, they can talk to each other and it'll actually pull in all. I, I use note station to import all my Evernote data and it saves it here, which is kind of cool. It's a manual process. It's not like doing it every day. In fact, I'll think about it. Um, right now I'll do, I'll start it right now because I'm, you know, I'm crazy like that. Yeah, and actually, USB device support. So I found uh, mixed feelings about it. So I think at one point, I did try to plug in a USB drive and copy a file over. Yeah. And it was kind of wonky. It wasn't... Uh, really? Yeah, I don't know if it was something with this unit not having enough juice or what, but it was. Um, it didn't always complete the copy. I'm, I'm not huh. quite sure why. Maybe it was a... a bug in the version of DSM I was running or something sure. like that. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that it could potentially do, though I didn't, uh, again, I, I wasn't quite on the mark, is you can actually use it as a print server. Oh, totally. What I did is, yeah. with the, well, the thing is I plugged my uh, HP inkjet, but it's kind of a wacky model, and the thing is the driver that it loaded wasn't quite right, so it wasn't quite the best solution for me. But for a lot of printers, USB printers, you can plug them into the disk station, and then they will appear... As a, uh, uh, <clears throat> well, I think it'll publish it using Bonjour or you know zero configuration. It'll, it'll advertise the printer to your network and you, and you connect to it. Yeah. Um, but because yeah, it didn't load quite the right driver because uh, my inkjet is a thirteen by nineteen and it, it didn't quite grok that. And then I printed stuff and it, it wasn't placed properly. Sure. So I plugged it back into my Mac and used my Mac Mini as a print server. And that, right. that works fine. It, it loads the. Uh, driver but that's neat too that you can also plug in a lot of usb devices and it'll do clever things with them as well yeah, yeah. i don't think now if i plugged in a usb ssd could i make it part of i, I suspect i can't make it part of the array that that has to be no i the so i have a ds 1815 plus right so it's last year's model i don't think they've got an eight bay unit um for 2016 yet but uh so it's a, it's a, it's a beefy thing. And because I've got some extra bays, I took an old SSD that I had and put that in and as an SSD cache, just to speed up, you know, kind of local operations, um, a little bit decadent for sure, you know, just because that's, you know, you know, it's a little bit nuts to do that, but it actually, it, it works great. It made, it made a lot of things like the UI and that sort of stuff. It seemed like it made it faster. I don't know. You know, it could just be placebo effect but um but it certainly that's what it seemed like to me worked it, i i'm you know i'm re always regularly impressed by the um by the disk station i'm actually having a problem right now with with video station they added transcoding to it so uh, for offline viewing so i can tell it hey i want that movie on my ipad but i don't need the big honking you know 15 gig blu-ray version of it i just need you to crunch it down to something that's going to look good on my ipad and the disk station will do that transcoding if you have a disk station that that cpu that can do it which mine does and then when it finishes transcoding it will transfer it to your um to your ipad 
currently, and I don't know what's going on and why this is happening. Synology is actually doing some remote diagnostics. Uh, it finishes transcoding and then it sits there and it says, okay, I'm done transcoding. It's like, um, yeah, now I'd like that on my iPad, please. And it's like, oh, sh- sure, sure you would. But it never, it never actually starts that, that process or it takes days to, for that process to actually trigger. So we use Plex for this trip to copy everything to our, our, uh, our iOS devices and that worked just fine doing the same kind of transcoding thing. So it's fun. I like this. It's, um, like I said, it's, it's been a fun thing. Listeners to the show, certainly, um, this isn't the first time you've heard us talk about Synology. So I want to talk about Powerline though, John, can we, uh, can we jump quick and do Andy's thing before we, uh, before we say sayonara here? Yeah. I Are think, we done um, with Synology or no? Um, this was fun spending a half hour on a topic. Uh, you know, it's not something we usually do and it was kind of fun no, I letting think, go of the reins. I think the, the one thing I noticed, I'll, I'll maybe close with this here, but sure. the one thing that I thought that was kind of cool that they added, which, um, so they have a whole bunch of packages here, but they added something that I think is new to DSM six, or maybe I just never saw it before. But if you go to their control panel, I think they actually have like a security audit tool. Yeah, and I actually remember running it. Oh, yeah. I'll have, to, I'll have to double check where it is, but it actually will look at the configuration of your Synology and tell you uh, certain things that you're doing that aren't very good ideas. Like, I think in my case, it was like, um, yeah, your uh, SSH is on the standard port. You may want to move it to another one. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Oh, that is and well, I, and I think it said you may want to uh, have password rules enforced so that you yep you don't create a password that sucks. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. Yep. So it, it kind of examines its. I mean, it'd be nice if it happened in real time, but it. But um, I had not run that tool before, and I'm. I think I actually got a notification. It came up and it said, "Hey, you know, you should um, yeah, you should you should run the security audit tool because yeah. uh, because it's a good thing to do yeah." And, uh, so kind of self-healing. I thought that was neat. Yeah, self-aware. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the other thing, know, not Skynet or anything. But you I know. mean, the other thing here. I mean, to give you the, an example of the, uh, you know, the extent of the stuff that they offer here. So I'm looking. If I look in the package manager security, I can install antivirus by McAfee. Antivirus essential from Synology, which I guess is their package. Mm-hmm. So they, you can actually scan your file. Uh, so I would assume what happens is that it'll actually scan your files. Yeah, I'm running them. I, I yeah, and I get a I have it for viruses. Once a week. Yeah, for viruses. Yeah, I mean, especially if you're a repository for documents, you want to make sure that you don't spread viruses. So that's yeah. a that's actually a it's pretty cool, pretty neat feature. So yeah, it's um, it's crazy. I would say the only thing is somehow uh, you usually they're the only complaint that I'll have is sometimes getting tasks done is not always easy because they put the touch points in like two or three different places. Yeah, so if you you're can, trying to yeah, set up, like for example, right if you're, spot, yeah. like if you're setting up Time Machine, the thing is you have to go to one place to define the size of the volume, and then you have to go to another place to uh, set know, the user account or whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's um, they get better with with each release, and they right do. Now I, yeah, I think they're up to again, they're up to DSM six, which uh, they fixed a lot of lot of things that made me unhappy before. So yeah. thanks, Synology. That's fun. Yeah, they right. I I agree. Hey, so. Um, Brian Monroe says that uh, notes in iOS 10 and presumably Mac OS Sierra, people have been doing some digging and found that indeed the notes app, which just uses iCloud, 
uh, and is built into our Apple devices will allow collaboration, which means not only can I create notebooks that are shared amongst all my devices, but I could create a notebook with you, John, that you and I share, even though we don't share an iCloud account. And it, which is essentially what we do with Evernote or what we just talked about doing with NoteStation. So if Apple actually gets that right, then we don't need to worry about any of this. We just need to increase our iCloud storage. So that's, um, that's cool. Yeah. Mine's already increased. Same. I'm, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm throwing down the, 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 big the 99 a cents a month. Yeah. Well, it rounds up to a dollar with tax. But, oh, um, I have no tax here, man. Really? Yeah. I live in New Hampshire. Yeah. I wonder why they apply sales to, because yeah. you live in a state. So here's the deal. Here's the way sales tax Wait, works. You don't, you don't have sales tax? Not in New Hampshire, no. Oh, interesting. That's right. Okay, we have, I think it's six and a quarter percent right Yeah, now. so Apple or any company has to charge sales tax to people who buy things from them in any state where they have Nexus. And so Nexus is a, a presence and the IRS uh, and the state taxing authorities are actually worse, even worse about it than the IRS. They... They have to, it, Nexus is anything. For example, uh, of course, having an Apple store in your state is, is more than enough Nexus. But having one employee who works remotely and chooses to live in your state is uh, considered Nexus by many states. And it's why we at Mac Observer have to pay California franchise taxes because I have, uh, we have an employee, Brian Chaffin, um, who chooses to live in California and, you know, I told the California state taxing authority, man, I don't care if he called me tomorrow and said, look, Dave, I've been lying to you for the last five years. I've actually been living in Bolivia. I, you know, it'd be like, well, that's fine. You get your work done. You know, whatever. I don't care where you live. You're on the Skype calls or the Google Hangouts every day. What? what it doesn't matter. California's like, yeah, but it matters to us. So cough up the money, homie. All right. know, I think the same thing happened. It made me very sad. So for a while, I was doing the Amazon affiliate program. Yeah, and that Amazon killed it because of that, Par- partially. Well, because they of that. killed yeah. it because I think Connecticut wanted to force sales tax to be applied to those affiliate sales. Correct. And Amazon was like, oh, no. "Too bad for you. Sorry, you live in Connecticut. We're uh, shutting down the program in your state." And I'm like, "Yeah, oh, right. thanks. Thanks for nothing, man." All right, so uh, so let's go with Andy here and see if see where this goes. Um, I, maybe we can keep it to ten minutes. I hope so. <laughs> so um, Andy says, Andy from London, uh, maybe you'll come to the meetup on Tuesday. I or came to the meetup this past Tuesday because of when this show's being released. Uh, I'll shoot Andy a note separately. Uh, I have a problem with my power line adapters. I have a pair of Solwise Homeplug AV2s, which are rated at 1,200 megabits per second that connect my office on the first floor to the router on the ground floor. I have two machines in the office, a 2011 Mac Mini and a 5K iMac. The iMac connects to the router via Wi-Fi, and the Mini goes over the power line adapter, essentially via Ethernet. First problem, I've tested the power line using iPerf on my laptop, connected to the router over Ethernet, and then to the Mini over power line iperf client with the iperf client running on the mini i only get about 140 megabits per second over power line the second problem the connection to the mini from the router keeps dropping for minutes at a time i'm certain it must be power line causing this though all the lights stay green when this happens how do i know it's the power line and not the router well i've attached a constant ping running on both and uh, sure enough you can see the drops so and he asks you know what can i do so here's the thing um I've used these gigabit power line adapters. Uh, mostly, uh, they some of them are single, uh, 
stream and some of them are multi-stream kind of like our routers with, you know, single stream uh, wireless or MIMO multi-stream. And, and indeed some of these gigabit or even double gigabit power line adapters are multi-stream. They have a heat problem. Uh, so with regards to your connection going out, I've seen it here when you're sending a lot of data, it can heat these things up and one or both of them will just stop transmitting data until they cool off a little bit. And the lights don't necessarily reflect that. I've seen this. Um, I, I highly recommend using the single stream power line and the 500 megabit per second units seem to be fat. You, my experience, well, if you're using the multi-stream stuff, uh, you will see double the performance of whatever you see with the single stream stuff almost, uh, almost all the time. But um, even with the single stream stuff, there's no difference that I've experienced between the 500 and the, like the thousand or whatever they are uh, you getting 140 megabits per second in your home, you know, probably across multiple circuits. That's pretty fast for power line. Um, you know, we were big fans of power line starting years and years ago, but our internet connections were only, you know, 20 megabits down then 30 megabits down. Now that our internet connections are way faster than that, um, the, our internet connections for the most part are probably faster than what power line can do. You know, power line for me here tops out on a single stream tops out at about 70 uh, megabits and on a double stream, it's, it's the same as you're getting at 140, but it's not all that great. Um, again, it's an unreliable 140, which sounds like what you're seeing. Um, so power line will work. Stick with the AV500 stuff. That seems to be the most reliable in terms of being consistent. And that's important. But um, if you want faster, those Action Tech bonded 2.0 Mocha adapters that I have and have been testing, man, these things scream. Even just a regular Mocha adapter, you're going to get, you know, hundreds of megabytes per second. And I've got really crappy like cable, like some of these, these ends that I have on my, you know, my, the, the, the jacks that I've got on my cables are junk that I made myself and they're awful. And they still transmit at the maximum speed of Mocha one, which is, you know, a couple hundred megabytes, uh, megabits per second. Rather my Mocha two stuff will go to like four or 500 megabits per second. And the bonded Mocha 2, again, starts using this MIMO thing, multiple channels at once. I'm getting over 800 megabits per second. So we're really close to gigabit speeds. Close enough that I, you know, I, I said on the show a couple of weeks ago, I'm definitely going to have an electrician come and, you know, we're just going to, we're going to drill some holes and run some Ethernet cable. Uh, I am less inclined to do that now. It works really, really well. It doesn't interfere with our cable. If you have satellite, you're out of luck. It, it, the bonded Mocha 2 stuff, or maybe even any of the Mocha stuff won't work. But, um, but with cable, you know, I've got Comcast here. It's no problem. And it, wow, it's so good. It's so, I, I don't even think about it anymore. It just works. Plug it in and go. And I've got three of them plugged in in three, you know, kind of remote locations of the house. No problem. All good. Mm. Yeah. And you can get a pair of those bonded things for less than 200 bucks. Um, I'll find it on Amazon here. But um, yeah, here it is. Action Tech Bonded Mocha 2 Ethernet to Coax Adapter. 
149 bucks. So it's even down from where it was, you know, for the two pack, 150 bucks. Good wow. to go. I know. Huh. It's pretty awesome. I don't know. That's my feeling. What do you think, Mr. Braun? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm doing the Wi-Fi. <clears throat> well, that's the so other I, thing. So yeah. I got to say, the one thing that you mentioned about those products that disappoints me, kind of like another product that I recently used that disappointed me, in that it, uh, I, I, would, I would at the very least expect a device that is subject to overheating to kind of warn you. Yeah. When it's happening, like yeah. I've had this, I've, I've had this happen regularly when I'm using um, a GPS app in my car on my iPhone. Mostly, uh, almost always, yeah, it's only during the summer. I was so going to say, it's not interior. the GPS app that's causing it to overheat. It's just the sun causing your iPhone to overheat. Well, yeah, yeah because I have a dark interior in my uh, trusty right. 94 Saturn. What happens is that, uh, and it only happens really during the summer, is the sunlight bounces off of the dash, and I have a car mount, and eventually so much heat comes off of the uh, the dash yeah. that it overheats the iPhone. Right. And it comes up with little exclamation points saying, sorry, I'm too hot, I'm, I'm not working, and so what I do is typically I'll take it out of the mount, I'll remove the case, I'll put it, you know, on the, or what I should do is just run it without the case, and, and I think what I do is, yeah, I'll run the AC through the... Um, <laughs> Sure. Through the uh, defroster. And that usually gives me, uh, that usually keeps the temperature low enough where it doesn't overheat. But um, yeah, that's, I mean, it's, it's cool that you figured it out, that that's the problem, that it's just too hot. But you would mm. think a little indicator would come on or something saying I'm over. I mean, even I, I got a shredder, you know, an office shredder. And even even, even it has an overheat light. If, if I like, you know, stressed it out, it would it would shut down and say, I'm, I'm too hot, man. Hold, yeah. hold on a sec. Yeah, hold on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. But no, you, you know, you're totally right. And we've, of course, you know, that's the that's the one topic uh, that we didn't deep dive into today that we certainly could have uh, and probably would have been arguably the most obvious one is routers. Uh, and we'll so we'll do one of those. Uh, tell us what you thought, though, about this deep dive. Uh, but um, but yeah, the router thing with Wi-Fi, it can be a great extension. We've talked a lot about that. In fact, we talked so much. That's why sort of why I avoided it. But I'm happy to do that again. Um let us know what you thought about our uh, our little experiment here with deep diving. Feedback at macgeekab.com is where you can uh, where you can reach us if you want to. We'd like to hear from you. Are you are you sure you got that right, Dave? I, I think you said feedback at macgeekab.com. Uh, yeah, I said it correctly this week. Feedback at macgeekab.com. Or premium at MacGeekab.com. We'd love to, to hear from you there if you are a premium subscriber. And if you're not, obviously visit MacGeekab.com. You can go to a link there to sign up. We would love uh, your support if you're able. Um, 224-888-GEEK or for anyone who is not in the U.S. Plus one, 224-888-GEEK. You can call or text us and we would love to hear from you either way. So, you know, for anybody... Feel free to text us there. We would love to hear it. John, what's geek? I was going to say geek. <laughs> I'll call you geek. Dave geek. But geek is 4335. That's right. In fact, I don't think we've gotten, other than the text that you and I have sent as tests, I don't think we've gotten a text yet. Uh, at least not as of the moment we've recorded this. So I would love to for you to be one of the first to, uh, to text us at that number, folks. So... I'd love to hear from you. Facebook, 
Uh, our Facebook group is a great way to find us. MacGeekab.com slash Facebook and also find us on Twitter at MacGeekab over there and, and that links to all the other Twitter accounts that we all have. It's all good stuff. I want to thank Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com for providing all of the bandwidth to get the show from us to you. Of course, I want to thank our sponsors, including uh, Gazelle, which uh, was a sponsor for this show at Gazelle.com. Smile Software at, or Smile, I should say, at smilesoftware.com slash geek. Squarespace at squarespace.com slash MGG. Otherworld Computing at maxsales.com. Casper at casper.com slash MGG, where coupon code MGG saves you 50 bucks. And barebones.com for barebones software. All right, John. You're the only one that's home right now. Maybe you're not home. Maybe you're out and about too. So do you have any advice for those of us that are most certainly not at home. Um, I don't know if I do have any advice here, but I'm going to assume because this is kind of happening in the past, although you're listening to it in the present and the future is probably going to come someday. But I'm assuming that if you're hearing this now, that Dave is back and he didn't get caught. Actually, I'm not, I'm not back yet. I won't be no? back for another week. No, no. no. I don't get back well, until the day before we do the next show. Well, I'm, then I'm hoping when you do come back, you do come back, which will mean that you didn't get caught. Made up.